Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. Last week we saw Jonah run away from God, right? Did he have every right to run away? Let's be honest. Yeah, I think, I think he had every right to run away, right? Now, I told you the, the, the Ninevites. Uh, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were evil, horrid bunch. And I shared with you last week, you know, it's, it's kind of like if we put it to modern day context, it's like being in 1941 and being told by God to go to Berlin and tell the Nazis, you know, how evil and God's going to punish them. What would the Nazis do to you? Well, then you can only imagine uh, how, how Jonah would have felt going to Nineveh and, you know, confronting the Assyrians. He's like, yeah, thank you, God, but I kind of care for my life just a little bit, and I know I'm going to die one day, but I don't want to die that way. So off he goes on a boat, would have spent a fortune getting on this boat to go to Tarshish, which is on the opposite side of, of the Mediterranean, and he's in a boat with a bunch of sailors who aren't uh, obviously Jewish, they don't believe in the same God as he does, and the storm comes and they're trying to figure out what's going on, they finally nail it down to Jonah who's sleeping through it all, and uh, they say, why'd you do this? He goes, well, it's my fault, throw me into the ocean. And these guys don't want to be doing something wrong like that, so they try so hard to keep the boat going but they decide you know what we're gonna have to throw them and the moment they throw him overboard boom the storm stops and they worship god and we're picking up the story from that point because hey that boat goes on its merry way and everyone's saved on that boat and they're all good and well but poor old jonah is in the middle of the ocean still part of the storm and we're going to pick it up so open up your bibles to chapter two of jonah From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. At this point, Jonah's in the ocean, he's bobbing around, and a big fish, we don't know if it's a whale or not, but it's, it's big enough to swallow poor old Jonah whole. Um, he must have looked like a sardine to, uh, to this fish. But he just took the whole thing and swallowed him. And so from inside the fish, this is Jonah talking he says in my distress i called to the lord and he answered me from the deep in the realm of the dead i called for help and you listened to my cry you hold me into the depths into the very heart of the seas and the current swirled about me all your waves and breakers swept over me i said i have been banished from your sight yet i will look again towards your holy temple the engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. The seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I 
with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I would make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land, ceremoniously dumping him on the seashore. That is an intense chapter. Anyone who's been in the ocean caught in a riptide before? There's a couple of you. You can almost understand what Jonah is saying right here. You know, the engulfing waves, the, the powerlessness of being out in the deep, but you don't know how deep it is. You don't know what's around you. You can't see land. The water's engulfing you. Then he talks about going into the deeps of death. You know, he's dying. And then along comes a wave and swallows him whole. So the first thing I want you to understand this morning is that God is beyond all our fears. God is beyond all our fears. Anyone see the movie Pinocchio? The other Disney movie, Pinocchio. Remember Pinocchio when he was in the whale? Anyone remember that? There was this huge cavernous you know, room and there's just a little bit of water on the floor, right? And Pinocchio is kind of walking around in there, just kind of a bit sad because he's stuck in the whale now. You know, let me just tell you, that's not what Jonah experienced. Let me just be really clear with you on this. Jonah would have been in the belly of a fish. Okay, anyone seen the belly of a fish? Anyone, you know, gutted a fish and, and had, you know, caught a fish? Look, it's not pretty in there. Okay? Let me just say, there's a whole bunch of things in there. Fish have flagellum, you know, and all this gross stuff in there. He would have been stuck in this thing, not really being able to move around so much. And he's there for three days and three nights. I'm sure, you know, what there was to eat in the belly of a fish wouldn't have been very appealing, especially for breakfast. Okay, so this poor guy has a lot of time in a very cramped, gross space. I want to make this clear because, you know, sometimes some of us have this image of Pinocchio being in this huge whale. And there's good old Jonah having to contemplate life for a little while while he's stuck in there. Well, it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant at all. But I want to share with you two things that we get out of this. First thing. He's praising God from inside a fish. If that doesn't strike you as strange, I don't know what else I can throw at you. If you're stuck in the belly of a fish, is the first thing is that going to be the first thing that comes to mind? Sometimes we forget that praising God is actually a sacrifice we are called to make. Let me say that again. We forget that praising God is a sacrifice we are called to make. Sometimes we think of praising God as being something joyous, as, oh, hey, I'm going to... Or other times, I don't feel like it. But it's actually a sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Let's do this regardless of where we are or what we're doing. Offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Well, there's not much for Jonah to do. 
He's stuck in the belly of a fish. He can't go for a walk. There's no TV, no radio signal. He doesn't even have his little Bible with him to be able to read something. He's there alone. And then what he does is he praises God. But this is the other thing I want to share with you. He assumes he is saved. Uh, Jonah, wake up call. At least with drowning, you die you know, almost immediately. And the belly of a fish will take you a week to die. How can you think of yourself as being saved? Who's going to find you in the belly of a fish? They don't have big trawlers back then. Hoping that somebody will come around and snag this fish. He is alone. There's no SOS. And it's going to be a prolonged death. But he assumes he is saved. And he trusts in God. Even though he went from being in a very bad position to being in an exceptionally worse position. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, how bad a place are you in now? How bad a place are you in now? Because it can't be worse than being in the belly of a fish. And if God will answer Jonah's prayers, and if Jonah is confident that God will save him in that predicament, then there is hope for you. There is hope for you. He's praising God from inside a fish. I think that's brilliant. He assumes he's saved. God has not left him. Now, it would have been better if God had sent a boat along and pulled him out of the water instead of a fish. Hey, you know what? Isaiah got a chariot of fire to come around and help him out there, didn't he? Why couldn't he send a chariot of boats around or something? But no, that doesn't stop him from praising God. Even in the difficulty of his place. And not stopping him from assuming that God will save him. He will save him. Going on, I'm going to Jonah chapter 3, and this is where I'll be spending most of my time this morning in, um, because just knowing God will save us, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Okay, Take a look at Jonah chapter 3 now. He's thrown up on the ocean, which I'd love to see a fish throw up a human being on a beach. I'd love to see what that looks like. Um, it's, it's got to be quite a sight to see a grown man flying out of a fish. Um, but anyway, he's, he's thrown out, and then this, this is what happens. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, because he didn't get it the first time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to, to it the message I gave you. Um, uh, poor old Jonah figured that having gone through that whole scenario of being thrown in the ocean, swallowed by a fish, he can get away with not having to do um, what God had originally called. No, God, God's like, now have you got the picture now? Just go and do what I asked you to do now, right? Jonah's thinking, yeah, I don't want to spend another three days in a fish, so I'll go do whatever you say, Lord. It can't be any worse than what the Ninevites would do to me. Um, so he heads back out, and notice how God doesn't give an explanation this time. God is straight up, just do it. 
I'm not giving you an explanation. I'm not even going to be nice to you and saying, please, or hey, I love you, dude, go do it. He just says, go do it. And Jonah, without thinking twice, in fact, in the next verse it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it, uh, three days on foot. So Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The NIV puts that overthrown very, very politically correctly. I think uh, the King James Version is like, uh, you'll be destroyed. Uh, You'll be heaped with uh, mass destruction. Armageddon will come. It's just really bad words that are put in place, which actually the Hebrew does portray something very bad is going to happen if, you know, because of what they've done. So the Ninevites react by believing God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. He's getting the animals to get covered in sackcloth as well. Okay, wow. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. You imagine, just, just imagine the Nazis saying this. Okay, this is how bad these guys are. And he said, stop everything. Who knows, God may relent, yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The second thing we need to learn this morning is this, is God is patient as well as forgiving. He's patient with someone like Jonah. Patient that even though he disobeyed, and even though he failed, and even though he caused a lot of trouble, God still wanted to use Jonah. God still wanted to have him be the person. And you know, it's interesting because when it comes to anyone in ministry leadership, especially as a church community, we tend to judge them a lot more harsher, don't we? Don't we? It's the truth of it. And so when they get something wrong, we tend to come down hard on them sometimes. And sometimes that's warranted. Sometimes we we do need to come down on them. God wasn't soft on Jonah, but that didn't stop God from saying, I've got it wrong with you, Jonah, I'm going to get somebody else. In fact, he went straight back to Jonah. And I'm sure after Jonah had a shower and, you know, must probably went to a spa or something to kind of freshen up a bit, God said, I need you to go back to where I told you to go. And Jonah went. Jonah went. Now, if anyone here feels they've stuffed up, if anyone here feels that they've done so much wrong that they just messed up doing God's work in their life. Let me just tell you, I think Jonah did a pretty good job of messing up. 
And God still trusted him and sent him to Nineveh. If God can do that with Jonah, he can do that with you. You hearing me? We all stuff up. We all get it wrong. We all fall short. We're not perfect. When, and there's nothing as bad as a Christian bloke who gets a calling from God and runs away from it. And not only runs away from it, puts other people's lives in danger. And yet God will still use them, will forgive them and bring them back, redeem them and send them back on their journey. The, fine, the thing that I find really interesting is with all the bad reputation the Assyrians had, all the bad that they have done, they, they, they turn around. In, in fact, they turn around in a very remarkable way. They've done evil, evil things. I shared with you last week what they did. Okay, remember the whole head thing around the chains of the children? You know, flaying people alive. And they did that at banquets. They didn't do those in dungeons. They did them at mass banquets where they would sit and eat and watch people being murdered in horrendous ways. And then write about it, bragging about it. These guys are evil, but look... Jonah comes along and bang, they're convicted. In fact, the king takes four... This, this is what you've got to look at. Jonah comes along, it takes three days to get through Nineveh, right? Walking. You with me? Three days. So that's about what? How much can we walk in a day? How many Ks? 15 to 20 Ks? So it's 60 Ks. It's a pretty big city, huh? Okay. Let's even be narrowed down. Let's say we're going to do 10 Ks of that. It's still 30 kilometers. That's a big city. Okay. It takes three days to do it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, and look at what he proclaims. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's three Six, eight words. That's his whole message. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of their sin. There's no mention of repenting. There's no mention of anything. This is the worst evangelistic outreach that I've seen ever. Okay? They are really, he's not, he's not following the book on this thing. So he's gone a day's journey into it. He's proclaimed a horrendous message. Like He's just like, I've got to do this. I'm going to do it quickly. So here, you guys are all going to go. You've got 40 days and then you're gone. And they believed God. Okay, the, the, the interesting thing about this is, first of all, it says the Ninevites, meaning all of them, believed, not Jonah. Who do they believe? God but he's only gone a third into the town. He's only done a third of the town. And the whole lot of them believe. You know how they believed? Hey, 
This guy's coming to town. He, he tells us we're going to die. His God is God. We've got to believe in him. We've got to do something about it. And then they turn to the next person, and then they turn to the next person, and then next thing you know, the whole town is abuzz with it. In fact, all of them, all of them, Wow, okay, for, for such a bad preacher, I think he did pretty good. Man, I wish I, I wish I had that effect. All of them. He hit the whole town. In fact, it reached the king. Jonah didn't preach to the king. And then the king does this. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. Anytime in the ancient world a king rose from his throne, everyone went down. Something was going to happen. He was going to move. Someone was going to follow him. He was going to make a decree. Everybody went down. He rose from his throne. That's a big deal. Next step. He took off his royal robes. This was his badge of honor. This is what was due to him. This is what gave him almost godly status in his own empire. And he got them off. He covered himself in sackcloth. This is what the Assyrians would have covered their enemies in. You know, when we talked about flaying them alive when we talked about doing all these horrendous things, the prisoners were covered in sackcloth. Go online, look at some of the inscriptions. You see the enemies of the Assyrians as they're being butchered by them, covered in sackcloth. He has chosen to wear the thing that he humiliates other people with. This is the king. Can you imagine the queen... Of England doing this? Seriously. You imagine the impact that would have if she did this. And she, he sat down in the dust, which meant he would have had to leave his palace, abandon what was rightfully his and all the riches that came with it, and sat in the dust. That's pretty intense. That's an incredible response from somebody who we would look at as a heathen. Somebody we wouldn't even think of as being a Christian. But he responded. He realized the sin of his people. He realized his own sin. He knew where that message was coming from. He knew it was from God. And he responded as any adult should when they know they've done something wrong. He got off his high and mighty. He took off all that was burdening him with his pride. He covered himself in humility and waited, sat in the dust. There's a psychological process or cognitive behavioral process called transactional analysis. Okay, big words. Don't worry, I'll explain them really easy for you. 
It's based on three responses we make. And you've all, in, you've all encountered these three responses. In fact, most of you, uh, I would say, respond in a certain way. Most human beings do. It's, called, it's three responses, parent, adult, child, especially when it comes to conflict, but also when it comes to being confronted or being convicted. Okay, Most of us should be responding as adults, respond from the adult. But actually, we respond from the child. I didn't do that. I can't believe they even said that. Can you believe that? Oh, man, you know what? I've had enough of this. I'm out of here. Oh, let me tell you how how I'm thinking. I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. That's the child. God, I'm good at it. I really am good at it. I know it. I'm good at it. I respond from the child on the go. But you know what? Most of you in here respond from the child as well. Don't point your fingers at me. We all do especially when it comes to marriage, but also when it comes to work responses. We respond as a child. Oh, I demand. Oh, I can't believe. This is not true. This is the way I think it should be done. Instead, we're actually called to respond as the adult. And some of you encountered people who respond as the parent. Who's encountered the parent people in their lives? You know what they sound like, right? condescending, let me tell you how you should do things. This, this is the way you should really be doing things. Because I know. <laughs> you know who those people are, right? The most difficult, which seems to be, for some reason, for us humans, is to actually respond in the adult. To actually respond in a way that is, hey, what are they saying? Is there any truth to it? And how do I respond appropriately? Now that doesn't mean I kind of lay down and let them run over me. Sometimes it means stop. What you're saying is wrong. But other times it's also self-analyzation and saying, hey, how do I fit in this scenario? The king of Assyria had every right to act like the child. Who is this man? (laughs) We're going to take over his nation. We're mighty, we're strong. How dare he comes into my place and tells me how I do this? I know where I stand on this. Let me show you. Instead, he realizes his sin and chooses to respond as the adult. Five things I want to share with you, the five-step process. First, fasting. Do not let the people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. The king realizes that there is a problem here and we need to do something about it. So the first step he makes is fasting. Who's good at fasting in this place? Come on. Oh, I'm, I'm, don't look at me. No, no, don't look at me. It's the most difficult thing to fast, but fasting isn't so much just stopping eating. It's becoming disciplined in your actions and saying, I need to actually discipline myself and focus on what's going on. Fasting is actually a very important discipline. We don't do it well because we are inundated by society around us. 
I'm useless at it. I try. I go, usually I start in the morning, and Monica will tell you this, I won't have breakfast, and I'm fine until lunchtime here when I order pizza. Because I'm dying, I've got to eat something. <laughs> you know? We need to discipline ourselves and stop. And that's what he's doing. He's called a fast. Not just for the people, but everything. Everything. Adult response. Stop. What am I doing? What's going on? Hold everything. He calls a fast. His next step is repentance. But let the people and the animals be covered with sackcloth. What we have done is wrong. How we have acted is wrong. How can I make this right? Sackcloth puts you back into that position of saying, you know what, there's nothing else here to distract me. It's just me. And I need to be looking at myself and saying, what have I done? He calls a repentance. Put on your sackcloth, people. The next step, he says, is this prayer. Let everyone call urgently on God. This guy is getting it. He's nailing it. For someone who's not a Christian who doesn't believe in God, he's nailing the process. Let anyone or everyone call urgently on God. Get down on your knees and start praying. Call on your Lord. Start talking to him. Fourth step, conviction. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. What is hindering me from my relationship with God? What is holding me back? Now that I've, I'm, I'm not eating, I've, I've humbled myself in sackcloth, and I'm praying to God, what is holding me back from God? What is that thing that is not right in my life? He identified it immediately, obviously. Uh, I think we might be just a little bit violent. I mean, all those heads on the stake out the front may be a testimony to the fact that we have a problem with violence. I'd imagine there'll be some in there going, we're not that bad. I mean, the Babylonians are worse. I mean, they draw and quarter people. That's just horrible. We just behead them. You've heard people, right? (laughs) Maybe not to that degree. But you hear people say, oh, we're not that bad. Come on. I mean, so-and-so. I mean, God's not here to measure you up to anybody else but to him. And they notice it straight away. Let's give up our violent ways, huh? And the last one, hope. God may yet relent and with compassion turn his fierce anger. You know, we have to believe in hope. Hope that God will help us change. Hope that God will relent, will make it easier, help us on our way, draw out the path for us. There's got to be hope. Because if there's no hope, what's the point? Right? And these guys know it. There's got to be hope. I'm facing you, Lord. You know, I've got to fast. I've got to repent. I've got to pray and and I've got to be convicted. But I hope that you'll forgive me. And through Jesus Christ, amen, he forgives you. Because the most important verse in all of Jonah is this one right here. Because when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them 
the destruction he had threatened. These guys, you know, historically only lasted most probably a very short amount of time in their repentance because it was only a shorter time later that they went ahead and just destroyed all of Israel. And then they turned straight back to their evil ways. But how many times does God forgive us when we come to him? Is there a limit? Does anyone know that there's a limit? Is there? Is there a measure of sin? Is there? None at all. Zilch, zero. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. They they had right to hope in God because God will relent. He sees your heart. He knows where you're at. He knows your struggles. He knows the difficulties that you go through. He knows the ups and the downs. And he knows every sin that you've committed. And he knows your intentions. He knows what you'd love to be doing. And he knows what you keep falling into. And just like you do with your child, you love them so dearly you don't care. They might drive you crazy. They might, you know, you might throw your hands up in the air and think, I can't stand them anymore. You still love them to death. And God is the same way with you. There's just one catch. He wants you to rely wholly on him. That the only way we can do that, that hope, is through his son, which is why he sent him. So that hope becomes real. That hope becomes tangible. And unlike the Assyrians who just hope that God won't destroy them, we know for certain that God loves, cares, and won't destroy us. God saw what they did and how they turned. And he relented. At Jonah, I, I, I wrote this down because I, I found this incredible. With short, vague, and offensive words from a foreigner not mentioning anything about his God, not mentioning anything about their sins, and only about a third of the town heard the message, they all believed. They all believed. That's the power of the Holy Spirit when conviction hits the heart. I've thrown a lot out there. I haven't finished. Two books later, Nahum, the prophet Nahum predicts again, the Assyrians' destruction, it actually happens. But Jesus says these words, which I think are really important for us. In Matthew chapter 12, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus, hey, show us something. Yeah, you raised someone from the dead. That's not good enough. We want something more. Hey, yeah, you multiplied 4,000 fish. Hey, Dynamo, the magician, can do that. We, we want more. We want more than just... Give us another sign. And he says, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, 
will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the awful, basic preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Those words sink in now, don't they? Huh? They, they, they kind of sink in a bit more now, don't they? What do we learn from Jonah? Next week, it's, it's, we've got chapter 4, which I wanted to keep on its own, and we'll talk about grace. But just this week, we've seen Jonah being in the belly of a fish and still worshipping God. In, in, in the worst of places, still lifting up and praising the Lord. Realising that even though he's in the belly of a fish, he's saved. He goes to a town, preaches something awful to him. And actually, really, Jonah's responding from the child perspective, isn't he? He doesn't want to go, so he runs away like a child. And then when he finally goes to Nineveh, he just kind of, it most probably hasn't got the heart in it, and we'll see next week where his heart really is. But he's responding from the child. He's not responding from the adult. But the Ninevites respond as adults to his message, realizing their sins, following a, a, a proper due process, fasting, repentance. I can't remember all five of them. Conviction. Oh, my goodness, I'm supposed to be preaching this thing. I've got it written down. Hang on. Hope, that's it. Thank you. Here we go. Prayer, we forgot prayer. Five steps they take and they get it and God relents and we know that no matter how bad you are, you can't be worse than the Ninevites. You can't be worse than the Assyrians. And God forgave them. And then Jesus says, hey, be aware, this generation will stand up in judgment together with the men in Nineveh and they will hold you to account because through that preaching, through those words, they repented. Today you have someone bigger, someone greater and his name's Jesus Christ. He has done everything for you. He's poured out his love for you. He's poured out his life for you. And that's a better message than Jonah's. So where do you stand? Where do you stand? The challenge you're faced with this morning is this. Choose. Do I respond from the parent, adult, child? Do I need to be repenting? Do I really need to be fasting? Where is prayer in my life? Where is conviction? And what hope do I have? Where do I find that hope?